This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Textbooks and booklets and jotters, oh my. Today we are talking all things recording. What do we get our kids to write down? Why do we get them to do it? What actually is the point of our writing? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. A very good morning to you all from this chilly Gloucestershire on Saturday the 1st of October. We are 12 degrees right now, which to be fair is not too cold, but uh, given the the heat wave that we've had relatively recently, it is certainly feeling chilly this morning. Um, it's also very noisy today, I have noticed. We are just 9am right now, and um, before I even hit um the the go live button on the podbean app i could hear the the dulcet buzzing of a hedge trimmer from somewhere on my road um so i i commend that person for their eagerness to get out into their garden and get some work done and i'm gonna be honest i quite like the the ambient noise that is always guaranteed to start just before you go live on anything um, be it on a show, be it on a lesson, be it on a Zoom meeting, whatever it might be, you can guarantee that the moment you go to press record or start, uh, there is going to be noise coming from outside somewhere. And I would have thought now that we are three years, give or take, into using this technology for all sorts of things, um, we would be used to it. But there is still that little bit of um, stress that bites at me whenever I can hear the noise coming from outside when I am about to go live on something. But having said that, and I said this to an evening class that I was teaching um, this week, I kind of like it. I kind of like that the the screen and the technology and the, the background noise, it kind of takes away a barrier. People talk about how the screen puts up a barrier between you and the the people that you are talking to. But I think it takes one away because as teachers, we we quite often try and build this persona of perfection. Um, I, in fact, did a show on teacher persona and teacher self-esteem a few weeks ago. Please do go back and uh, check that in the archives if you haven't heard it. But we build up this persona of perfection, of making sure everything is planned down to the minute, that we know exactly what we're doing at all times. And, you know, part of that is down to professionalism. You know, we want to be treated as professionals, we want to present as professionals. Um, I think part of it is also as uh, protection, because we are in a job where we are judged constantly. Um, I had the inspectors in last week. That's why there was no show for me last week. I was kind of recovering. Um, We had the inspectors in last week. So, 
Um, the idea of, of teachers being judged is on my mind at the moment. But we have this 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 judgment and the the projection of perfection, kind of putting across that persona, is something that we can use to protect ourselves. Because if we can build that identity of of knowing what we're talking about, of being in control at all times, it can um, it acts as armor against the outside world. And so then, when when you encounter these things, such as ambient noise, um, when you are about to go into a meeting, it, it strips that control away because it reminds us that we aren't in complete control of our surroundings um, in the way that we attempt to be in our classrooms, for instance. Um, and it just kind of humanizes everything, I think. It, it shows our students that the teacher is just a person in a house or wherever they might be, just like them. Uh, and it creates a, a more level playing field which I, I think is important. Now, again, I am a language teacher. And so a lot of my job is asking kids to answer questions um, in the foreign language that wouldn't necessarily come up in any other classroom. You know, at, at GCSE, for example, for a speaking exam, we would quite routinely ask, you know, tell me about your family. Who do you get on with? Who do you not get on with? Um, do you plan on getting married so that we can get a future tense in? Um, all sorts of questions that would have no place coming up anywhere else. And so it is really important for for kids, particularly in a speaking context, to be relaxed and, and to be happy. Um, and I do think, you know, as I've been reflecting on this, I do think that removal of the barriers uh, is a way that we can we can help to achieve that. I'm, of course, not advocating that we all suddenly become infinitely less professional. Um, you know, there is important to have that um, that distance. But I also think it's important not to get hung up on on little things that we don't control uh, because, you know, there is nothing that we can do about it. And getting ourselves stressed over it does nothing apart from um, make everything a little bit less happy in the world. So, yeah. That's my uh, my little rant on ambient noise. And this is where somebody texts in and tells me that actually they couldn't hear the hedge trimmer. And so if I hadn't drawn your attention to it, it wouldn't have mattered. But that is, that is also okay. Um, because again, sometimes as teachers, we do things that other teachers might tell us are not necessary, but we do them for our, our own peace of mind, for our own well-being. Um, I, I recall a colleague who once went to her line manager to talk about time management, work-life balance, how to make sure that she can get everything done. And, and the advice that she was given was, perhaps you shouldn't plan your lessons in so much detail. And, and this colleague is a meticulous planner. Her, her, her planner is filled with her notes of exactly what she's going to do at each stage. Um, She's been teaching years and years and years, so it's, she's not uh, an ECT who is still getting to grips with timings and everything. She just likes to have her lessons outlined down to the letter. Um, and for her, that brings her confidence. It brings her peace of mind. And so that time is worth spending. So, you know, it's sometimes we have to do things because it's, it's good for our well-being. It's good for our mental health. We did have the inspectors in this week, and that is part of what uh, what has inspired the crux of my show today, which I'll get onto in a minute. 
um, sorry, we had the inspectors in last week. It was the end of last week. And it was an experience, as it always is. <laughs> um, obviously, it was our first inspection since the pandemic. Um, and it kind of called to mind how little things changed. Um, I saw something on Twitter not so long ago, I believe indeed it was from Teachers Talk Radio, where we asked, where it was asked whether we have squandered an opportunity uh, since the pandemic to to improve education. And I think the answer to that is an, an, a resounding yes, because we seem to have gone immediately back to normal. Um, I was observed twice, which is fine. You know, I don't mind being observed. That's absolutely okay. And I was called into two meetings. Um, and the meetings were an interesting experience because it was eight members of staff and an inspector all in a meeting room. Um, it was very cosy. And I thought, you know, a year ago, two years ago, that wouldn't have been allowed. It was why the, the inspections paused. It's why we didn't have them. Um, and now all of a sudden we are back to normal. And as we enter cold and flu season, it once again makes me wonder exactly what this back to normal looks like and why we were so desperate to get back to it. Um, in fact, I saw something on Twitter just this morning. Um, a parent posted a, a letter that she received from her child's school outlining the reasons why a child should or should not be off sick. Um, you know, and there were there were the obvious ones. But actually, if, if a child is feeling unwell, surely they should have the right to be off so that they can rest, they can recover, they can recuperate, and so that they can protect their classmates and their teachers. The, um, the letter for the school, and again, I, I haven't fact-checked this, and, and we must always take everything we see on social media with a grain of salt. Um, the, the letter said, think about whether a, an adult would take time off of work for this illness. And I thought, well, actually, an adult probably should take time off of work for illness. You know, we've come straight back into romanticising this idea of pushing through when you're sick, this idea that, um, you know, work takes priority over everything. And that means that we've learnt no lessons whatsoever from the pandemic. We've learnt no lessons about how easily illnesses are transmitted. We've learnt no lessons about the rights of other people to health and how my illness shouldn't necessarily infringe on their right to be well. Because, you know, why, why should somebody else get a cold if I'm suffering with one and it's horrible why should I pass that on to somebody else now of course there are quite often barriers to taking time off uh, lots of lots of jobs will penalize workers for taking time off by cutting pay for example uh, in teaching the the old chestnut is actually it's much more time consuming and much harder to plan a cover lesson than it is just to go in and teach it yourself, which is absolutely true. You know, that is absolutely true um, and is possibly a, a factor that we need to consider. It's something that we need to change. Um, I personally have now a bank of activities in my classroom. I've got some photocopyable booklets um, which are actually designed as homeworks but that are there ready to go for cover lessons. 
um, because they can be taught by a non-specialist. It doesn't matter if if the teacher coming to cover me has never spoken French a day in their life. They can just photocopy the activity and it's good to go. Um, and so that then is is low prep because I realized that my health is important. And so taking time off so that I can recover is important. But equally, you know, if you don't want to center yourself in that way, if it goes against your nature to center yourself in that way, you should remember that the health of your colleagues is also very, very important. And the health of the kids that we teach is very, very important. And quite often, it's not even necessarily taking time off so that we can recuperate. It's taking time off so that we can protect those other people so that we can protect our colleagues so that we can protect our kids anyway that that was a bit of a tangent wasn't it when i started talking about inspection <laughs> um inspection of course is is a bit of a weird one because it is something that we take for granted it's something that we know comes every four or so years um it's something that we prepare for the inspectors come in it's a flurry of activity for three, four days, and then it goes back to normal. And um, and then you await the judgment. And that's always a bit of a strange one to me, because I, of course, you know, haven't been observed and, and the inspector was taking notes. Theoretically, and again, I don't know the law on this, so if anybody does, I would be, I would be interested to find out. You can uh, text into the show if you are listening on the Podbean app, or you can tweet me at Mr. D. Lester, or one word. So that's the at symbol, M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, and let me know. Um, but it's my understanding that because I was observed and the inspector took notes, I would have the right to ask to see those notes. Um, and so I could probably get a feel for how the inspection was going by asking for that information. And so it does seem a bit odd to me. That, uh, that everything is then kept top secret until the report goes live. Um, I understand why. I absolutely understand why. Um, because, you know, the it needs to be checked. Um, the inspectorate, of course, has the right to, to draft and redraft, and, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I just think, I don't know. I don't know. It does seem a bit odd to me that we are judged so much, and many professions these days are judged. But in teaching, we are judged by the inspectorate, we are judged by our leadership team, we are judged by middle management, we're judged by the kids. Um, and and yet we still have to kind of wait to see what the outcomes of those judgments are. But I'm also aware, and I've, I've spoken quite openly on the show about this before, I'm also aware that a lot of my preoccupation with these judgments um, comes from the anxiety that I have, you know, I was I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder pretty much a year ago. Um, I think you, you know the the doctor and I kind of uncovered it something that I probably always had, but it's been about a year since I got that diagnosis, and so I understand that with that comes this um, not obsession, but this <laughs> anxiousness, I suppose, the anxiety over being judged, and um, 
that's something that we quite often don't talk about is the the impact of the inspection the impact of the constant scrutiny on the mental well-being of teachers now i was absolutely fine like i said i actually don't mind being observed um i have i have a theater background so i'm quite used to to people being watched and in fact i remember i have a b-ed and i was on my and i'm just trying to think third yeah the first placement of my third year so it was my penultimate placement and the school was advertising for a new year two teacher and they had all of the applicants came in and i was sitting teaching a lesson uh, it was a literacy lesson i remember it vividly and suddenly all of the applicants came into my classroom and they sat on the carpet with the kids <laughs> and you know i was still a trainee i was almost at the end of my of my training but i was still a trainee and yet i had all of these people who were probably only just finished training like the the year before or or whatever they came in they joined my lesson and that was kind of it was almost like an exposure therapy since then i've not had any problems with anybody coming to my lesson at any point um i'm absolutely fine with it but you know not everybody is not everybody is and you you have to wonder to what extent we do not not jeopardize but we do walk this knife edge i think with with teachers who do suffer with anxiety of being observed and yet it's something that we take for granted in the workplace um, the final thing that i want to do in my little monologue this morning before i start uh, before we start the the business of the day is to thank all of you who downloaded my show from a couple of weeks ago celebrating uh national german language day um it was quite heartwarming to see how many people had actually gone back and, and listened and downloaded. And I was talking to, to Nadia, my guest, I was talking to her midweek about this. And as German teachers, we are told quite often that German is being less studied. Um, people tell us this as if we didn't know. Um, you know, we we are constantly reminded that numbers for German are falling, that um, exam entries for German are falling, that German is being cut from school curricula, etc., etc. Um, you know, we we get that kind of negative feedback all the time, um, and you know, it's it's never meant maliciously. I think it's often just people making conversation, um, or people generally genuinely interested in why and and wanting to to talk about it but we do you know we get it quite a lot and it does start to make you think that that german is not appreciated at all and so it was really uplifting for me to see that um to see that so many people were interested in in our celebration of of german language day and to see so many people wanting to engage with us about the german language and, um, and and to celebrate it with us. So for anybody who has gone back to listen to that show or for anybody who has downloaded it, thank you very, very much. If you haven't done so, again, the whole backlog, uh, the whole back catalog of not just the Saturday Breakfast Show, but, um, but everything that Teacher Talk Radio produces is available from wherever you are listening to us right now. So please do go back and, and check out some of those shows because the the nice thing about um, Teach Talk Radio is that we are evergreen. While we do talk about things that are affecting us in this moment, 
um, you know, so I'm going to talk today about exercise books and, and, and jotters and booklets and, and how I'm tackling that right now. This could also be something that, that you start to think about in six weeks time, a year's time, whenever it might be, you know, when if, if you're a budget holder, whenever you're sitting down with your stationary budget. And so, you know, it is quite nice to, to have these references to go back and listen to again, um, even if you've already heard it already, because you never know when you might pick up something new. So yeah, thank you if you have gone back and downloaded and listened. And um, please do consider going back and checking out our back catalogue if you haven't already. have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for your voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash your voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators. Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. ITV News reports on the backlash facing Middlesbrough Council from parents who want to see a return of chicken nuggets, pizza and chips to school dinners. Parents have complained about food options offered by schools across the town, claiming they are too adventurous and the portion size is too small. The complaints came following a move by the authority to try and increase fruit and vegetables, reduce sugary items and introduce vegan options and other healthier alternatives. Comments on Middlesbrough Mayor Andy Preston's Facebook page number over 400 and the majority of them criticised the new menus. Concerns include pupils not eating enough during a long school day, and this impacting on concentration, focus and therefore learning. The current cost of living crisis has also increased concern as children eating a hot meal at school each day becomes even more essential for some families. The changes came at a time when one in 10 children in Middlesbrough are classed as obese when they start school and this increases to one in five once they're in year six. 
Middlesbrough Council has yet to comment on the story. The Royal British Legion has announced plans to live teach about aspects of remembrance this autumn. In plans announced on the forces.net website, it states that children will be helped to understand the importance of remembrance and its continuing relevance today. The Royal British Legion will join forces with the National Literacy Trust to launch a new range of teaching resources, including live lessons. The Alive with Poppies Poetry Project will take place between the 3rd and 6th of October, and the Live Remembrance Assembly will be on the 11th of November. This year, all the resources will explore the theme of service, highlighting the role of civilian emergency services, the work of intelligence services, as well as the work of the armed forces. Further details can be found on the Royal British Legion website. In Scotland, the National reports on Nicola Sturgeon's visit to St Albert's Primary School in Pollock Shields, Glasgow. She visited to see an assembly marking the end of Scotland's Climate Week, saying it was only right to listen to the voices of young people on climate change. The theme of this year's Climate Week was to encourage respectful conversation about climate change. After the recently announced death of rapper Coolio, a video of him partying with University of Central Lancaster students went viral once again. The video originally posted in 2013 shows Coolio singing Gangster's Paradise inside a student house in Preston. The viral video also shows him cooking a meal with the students. Many have returned to the internet to view the video and pay tribute to the artist most well known for the song which featured on the soundtrack of the film Dangerous Minds. The film follows a teacher and her group of students studying at a school in a deprived part of Belmont, California. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm answering the frequently asked question, how do I support a new pupil that doesn't speak English? Well, technology is here to help. There's a few things to consider first. Apps work differently on different devices, so you'll need to have a play with the kit you have to hand. This episode is just a list of things you could try. Also, you need to remember that translators are not totally accurate, although they are pretty good nowadays. To prove this, I translated my last sentence into Ukrainian and back again. It went in reading. Also, you need to remember translators are not totally accurate, although they are pretty good nowadays, and came out. Also, you have to remember that translators are not completely accurate, although they are pretty good now. Totally became completely, and nowadays became now. Not bad, really. So, what is available for working online? Microsoft Edge has immersive reader built in. Press F9 and you'll be greeted with a plethora of tools. As far as translation is concerned, you can translate a page into over 80 languages and have it read to you. You can also send a link to open in reader view by adding read colon in front of the address before you send it. In Google Chrome, you can go to settings and add languages to allow you to translate. What about documents? If you use Microsoft Office in any app, highlight, right click and select translate. Pick your language job done. Same applies to Google Docs, although it will save as a translated copy. Need a quick translation for an important question? Translate. Do you need the toilet? Into Russian. In Russian, do you need the toilet is? That example was Siri, who doesn't translate into Ukrainian yet. Try it with your smart devices. On most devices, you can change the language used. Just be careful with this one if it's a shared device or you or someone supporting a child needs to use the device too. Also, finding the setting again when the language has been changed may need you to have a second device to copy so you can find the buttons in a different language. That sounds too much like I'm speaking from past experience. Do you need a translated transcript of your whole class explanation? Download the Office app. 
tap the plus sign and choose voice. Quick side note, as you're recording, you'll need permission of the people in the room to do this. Everything you say will be transcribed and then you can either translate and send or send for them to translate in one of the aforementioned ways. In this app, you can also use lens to scan handouts and translate. Finally, depending on your license, you could use a video call such as Google Meet, Zoom or Microsoft Teams to provide live subtitles using closed captions and translate. Set up a video call, join with the pupil's device and have a live translation of your lesson. This will depend on the pupil's reading ability and needs some technical knowledge to enable, so it might be worth asking your technical support if it's possible. For a visual version of some of the ideas in this briefing, check out TT Radio 2022 on social media. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, as a language teacher, I am just going to jump on a couple of things that, uh, that Steve said there. Um, to just offer my experience. Um, he is, Steve is absolutely right that you do need to, if you're using um, translation from speech into writing, you do need to make sure that your child actually does read their home language. Um, many languages, uh, Chinese I'm thinking about specifically, has a, a very high difficulty rate. Um, and not all children, particularly if you are dealing in primary, not all children will be able to read fluently in their language. So do be careful of that because it can quite often be embarrassing for them. Um, Japanese children learn very specific um, kanji at different stages of their education. Um, it's mapped out in, in Japanese curricula at what age they should learn different kanji. They do learn their hiragana and katakana, their alphabet, quite early on. And so uh, transcribing that way might be more useful. Uh, but yeah, do absolutely be aware of that. Um, I agree with Steve that, uh, that machine translation is becoming more accurate. Um, it, is, it is getting better. It still is not there. What I find is that it's quite good if you want to get a summary of something in a language, then it then it's good. Um, let's say you have, for example, a list of classroom expectations. So it's something that the child doesn't need in lots of detail, but that they just need to have a summary of, then that's absolutely fine because any grammar errors or, or vocabulary mistranslations that the machine comes up with um, can be overlooked. But if you are going for something technical, um, if you are teaching a, a particularly difficult topic, please don't rely on the translator or have it translated and then proofed by somebody who does speak the language. Um, because I've I've had it before where students have turned in homework to me that they've run through Google Translate. And of course, because of their level in the language, they weren't sophisticated enough. The level wasn't sophisticated enough to see the errors. So I once marked a piece of Latin homework that had numbers randomly spliced in the middle of, of sentences because the student had just run it through Google Translate, which then combed um, the phrases it wanted to use from online texts. And of course, most Latin texts have um, chapter and verse numbers still attached to them. So, you know, it can it can be very confusing um, for the person who reads the language because I couldn't understand what my student was trying to do by having these numbers in the middle of her sentences uh, until she finally confessed to, to having not actually done the homework herself. Um, so, you know, absolutely, we need to make use of, of all the tools that we have to make sure that we are integrating our EAL children into the classroom. 
um, I think that is I think that is brilliant. I do, and I'm not one of those teachers who I'm not a linguist who will routinely demonize machine translation. Um, I just, you know, from my point of view, it just is important to make sure we look at the pros and cons of it. But that is not what I'm here to talk about today. I am here today to talk about exercise books specifically. Um, again, I was inspected, we were inspected, my school was inspected a couple of weeks ago, and obviously one of the first things that we had to do was hand in the exercise books of select pupils so that the book scrutiny can could happen. Um, so we did, you know, they were they were diligently handed in. Um, I'm still waiting to have exercise books from a couple of my year eights back, um, which is uh, a shame because it has meant that this week they've had to do without in their lesson, but that's okay. That's okay. And it, it that has kind of made me think about why we use exercise books and what they are for. Now, to be clear, I am not an anti-notebook person, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, just looking around the room that I am in right now, I can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. I can see 13 notebooks and planners just dotted around the room. Uh, and they're just the ones that I can see. I'm also aware that I have some in drawers. I have some stashed away in bags. Um, I am basically never more than two feet away from a notebook. So I am, I am not an anti-notebook person. Um, I am also one of those people who had to talk himself out of buying brand new stationery um, when he started his his MA a couple of weeks ago because he has all of these notebooks that can already be used. So you know, I am very much a, very much a stationery addict. So I am not I am not trying to get rid of stationery at all. I am thinking about why we use exercise books. I am thinking about what the point is because for me. We should never ever do anything in education without there being a very defined point. Because we have limited time in school. Our children, it might seem like a long time, in, in the UK, our children are in school for 14 years. You know, in England, they are in school from reception through to year 13. They have 14 academic years in school. And so across a, a lifespan that might seem like a long time. For the kids, it definitely seems like a long time, but it's really not at all, particularly when we start breaking it down into, um, into different... <laughs> I have just had a text from my head of department who is clearly listening. Hello, Marie. I am glad to hear from you. Uh, apparently they were in the staff room, so that was my fault for not going to look properly. So I do apologize to the inspectors. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, uh, I can't remember what I was saying now. Anyway, yeah, yeah, we we don't have very long, particularly when we cut it down to our um, our individual subjects. And so we've got to make sure that we are using exactly the amount of time that we have that we that we are using it properly. And so I began to think about why I actually use exercise books, and I realised that I do it because I used them in school. So I remember walking into my very first French lesson in year seven, and I was given three books. Um, I was given what was termed the big book, the medium-sized book, and the small book. I'm sure any of you who have done foreign languages um, 
in the UK in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 or so years will will relate to this. Actually, I seem to forget how old I am. Let's say in the last 20 to 25 years, um, you will relate to this because you will have had an exercise book, maybe A4, maybe A5. And anytime you did a listening activity or a reading activity, that was where you did it. So, you know, when you when you listened to to Celine talking about what she did at the weekend and she went to the cinema with her best friend and they watched a comedy and it was interesting. And that was what you jotted down in that book. Then you probably had an A5 grammar book which uh, in theory, you should have written all of your verb endings for all of your conjugations down in. Um, and that was about the extent of the use of the A5 grammar book. And then you'd have had an, not quite A6, one of those weirdly long rectangular, but small books, uh, probably with a line down the middle instead of a normal margin, and you would have written English on one side and French, German, Spanish, whatever it might have been on the other as your own little mini dictionary. And they probably would have been hole punched and put in a folder. Um, in my case, they weren't. Uh, we just had these three books knocking about in our bags for a little while. And that was how I went through my, um, certainly between the ages of 11 and 16, that was how I went through my modern languages education. And so when I then started to teach modern languages, that was what I did, is what the teachers on my school practice did, exactly the same format, it hadn't changed since I'd been at school, big book for exercises, medium-sized book for grammar, small book for vocabulary. And so I did that, and I did that for years, um, without thinking about it. I would occasionally lament the fact that my A5 grammar book only used two or three pages across the year. And I would think about how wasteful that was. And we tried this idea of that lasting through. So at the senior school, on my senior school site, we, we tried giving them a grammar book in year nine and then having that last through years nine, 10 and 11. Um, but invariably it didn't. And, you know, we should never, as teachers, get caught up in, I'm doing this because it's the way I've always done it. But that's exactly what I was doing. Um, and then COVID came along and it completely changed how I taught, mostly because I had my kids' exercise books. Um, lots of forward-thinking people had seen the other industries were locking down and so were giving back all their kids books um just in case i had thought oh they're never going to shut down schools you know they, they need us for for babysitting um and so i took in my books for marking um and and then we were locked down so my students didn't have their exercise books so i started to get creative with how i was teaching and i found that i didn't miss the exercise books at all not a single jot. Um, and so in the in the couple of years since then, I've been reflecting on, I've been changing up, I've been experimenting with how I get my students to record things. And and I've tried a few different techniques that, that we will talk about today. I haven't done the same thing two years in a row yet, because I still feel like I'm experimenting. I don't feel necessarily that any of them were a waste of time. And I don't feel that any of my experiments hindered what my students were doing. Uh, it didn't hinder the education. I just haven't quite 
yet got what I want it to be. And if I'm going to do this big shakeup and, and stop doing something because it's how I've always done it, then I'm going to make sure that it is exactly the way that I want it to be. So exercise books, again, let's, let's start with those because we've all use them. Those of you who are listening and are teachers probably do use them, even if only some year groups, not all. Those of you who are listening are not teachers, you will have used them in the past. So let's let's think about them. Let's think about their, their pros specifically. Um, in an article from 2020 that is published on Medium, I will tweet out all the links to the articles that I reference a bit later on. Uh, Christian Shanks, who at the time of writing was an assistant principal of teaching and learning in Bradford and a history teacher, former head of history. Um, he wrote an article called The Tyranny of the Exercise Book. Uh, the title caught me. I think that's that's good, um, good journalistic writing in there. So he says that Exercise books are still by far the most efficient tool in terms of cost and practicality for students to use to complete their work. And I absolutely cannot argue with that. Um, a, a pack of exercise books from consortium um, or wherever it might be that you get your stationery costs pennies, realistically. Each exercise book does not cost very much. If you compare that to how much it costs to create a booklet for students, and that's what I'm doing this year uh, with my year nine class um, and my year eight class, actually thinking about it, my year nine French and my year eight German, I'm doing booklets with both of those. The, the ultimate cost of printing off those booklets for a class of 21 and a class of 13, 14, um, it's going to be much more than if I had handed out exercise books. And of course, that's me being lucky enough, privileged enough to teach in an independent school where I have small classes. You know, if I had a class of 34, which was my biggest class in a, in a, a state school, then there is no way that the, the reprographics budget would have covered that. So there is always there is always always a cost factor here and it's sad that there's a cost factor because we should be able to do things because they are the right thing for education they are the right thing for our students learning and not because we have a very fixed budget that needs to pay for ridiculous amounts of stuff um but again you know budgets in school is a whole different uh show and it's a show that honestly I am I'm not qualified to to do. I'm not uh, I'm not ahead of anything. Um, I have no aspirations for leadership. Um, but it would be it would be an interesting thing for for us to discuss. And so we have this this cost efficiency, this cost efficacy. We of course have the book scrutiny which uh, which is part of the quality assurance process and the appraisal judgment. Um, as, as Christian points out, the, the book scrutiny, the book look, whatever your school calls it, uses the textbook as pretty much the sole way, let's be honest, of judging, uh, and I'm quoting now straight from, from Christian's list, uh, how much progress a student has made over time, 
how effective and how high quality a teacher's marking and feedback is, how students have reflected on their work and then improved it, DIRT, um, as it is referred to in most schools, uh, the quality of the taught curriculum, and how much students care about their work, for example, via presentation or book pride. Now, all of that is true. All of that is very true. That is what a book is for these days. An exercise book is no longer a place for students to take notes, realistically. It's no longer a place where it's good enough in languages for us to say, right, we're going to do a listening in the margin, please write down the numbers one to five, and then you're going to write the letter of the correct answer next to it. Because if you do that, and then you just give it a tick, you run the risk of coming into critique that either you have marked something that wasn't worth marking because it was just a list of letters, or that you've done an activity that the student, when it comes to revision, won't remember anything of because it's just a list of letters, or that you haven't given enough feedback on that list of letters. And so you, you we, and of course by we I mean I, I'm kind of taking my experience and, and um, extrapolating it out to everybody. So please, if you do, if your experience differs to mine, please do text in. Uh, once again, you can do that on the Podbean app. You can um, tweet me at Mr. D. Lester, or if you know me in real life, then just text me. That's absolutely fine. I'm here. Um, and so the book, the exercise book has become, as Christian points out, less a tool for learning and more a tool for teacher judgment. Which, of course, means that as teachers, we start doing things that don't necessarily impact the learning and can, in fact, be a bit of a waste of time to make sure that the book is presented nicely because book pride, how much students care about their work, is important in our evaluation. We've got to make sure that we manipulate our curriculum to include dirt time when we know there's going to be a book scrutiny. And I hold my hands up, I've done this before, where we've been warned, you know, a week or two in advance, we're going to take these students' books in. And so I've had to change my scheme of work to move up my dirtable activity so that there was evidence in there. Maybe the kids weren't quite ready for that. And so maybe the, the feedback wasn't as meaningful as it could have been if we had done it two weeks later when I had planned to. But we didn't. And that was my own pride there getting in the way. I wanted to be seen as, I wanted to be judged as a good teacher. Let's be honest, we all do. None of us want to be told that we are rubbish at our job. And so I did something that maybe was not in the best interest of the education, but that I knew would get me brownie points. And I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't, but I did. Um, I have gone back and, and, again, marked things that didn't necessarily need to be marked in the depth that I did, purely because I thought that that reflected high quality marking. And it did reflect high quality marking. What it did not reflect was whether my students learned from that marking. And again, there's a difference. There is teacher busy work, which is me writing paragraphs and paragraphs about how something could be improved. 
And then there is actual feedback, which is sitting down and talking to my students about what they did right, what they did wrong. And again, you know, I recognise that I'm in a privileged position where I have 21 students in the class. My year eight German is 21. I can do that. I can go around and talk to them individually about an essay that they've written. Couldn't necessarily do that if I had 34. So again, recognising that privilege that I have. I have done what we've all done, where I've said, and I, in fact, I did it this week, where I said, right, okay, now please can you swap to a different colour pen when they're marking, when they're doing um, self-evaluation. Now, on the surface, you say that's so that I can check that you haven't been cheating, that you didn't, you know, change your letter uh, as you were marking it. But really, it's so as when my HOD looks through my books, they can immediately see that I've got evidence of self-assessment because it's there in a completely different colour. It doesn't even really need to be processed. It's just there in a different colour. And lots of schools' marking policies will do that. It will tell you that your dirt needs to be in a specific colour. And that colour might be different to your um, SPAG, your, your spelling, punctuation, grammar marking so that it can all be seen. Does the colour of your pen improve the quality of the student's education? That obviously is, is mixed. There is mixed feedback on that. I remember being trained, again I trained primary, and we were told in my training, it was part of a professional studies lecture, do not use red pen because that has a negative psychological impact on the children, they will come to fear the red pen. So use green instead. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, won't eventually they start having these same negative associations with green? But that's that's by the by. So there is, um, there is research to suggest that the colour of pen maybe is quite important. Does everything need to be in a different colour? Not necessarily. We are just going for something that looks good. Now, I'm actually not against the idea of having something that, that looks nice. Um, a, a journal, an exercise book, a notebook, whatever it might be, that, that is well presented. My school, as part of our um, performance management review this year, uh, into, uh, introduced something that they're calling the Professional Development Journal. And... Realistically, it's it's a, a Word document where we just keep track of everything that we do as part of our CPD. What I am in the midst of doing, uh, because like I said earlier, I can't do anything new without using it as an excuse to buy a new notebook, is keeping a physical copy of my PDJ. I've got a, a a disc bound folder and every time I do something you know every time we do an online course and I get a certificate I uh, punch it and it goes in my disc bound folder as a, as a, a physical record of what I've done um, again it's a bit like when we did PDPs back at university with the idea that you could take it with you on an interview and it would show your interviewer everything that you have done um, I never ever had an interviewer look at my PDP they didn't have time um, they were just too uh, more interested in asking me questions. But I like that. I like having a, a nicely produced visual record of what I have done to improve my development over the year. 
And in fact, what I am doing at the moment is every time I do a show, um, I QR code a link, uh, and that goes into my PDJ so that if I, I don't know who I think is going to review it because my line managers will look at my word document, but if anybody does review it, or in fact, if I, in five years want to go back and look through it, I can scan the QR code and I can come back to, to my shows, you know, so I am in favor of books looking nice, but if we're going to do that, then the students should have a presentation book. The students should have a bit like they have, I suppose, in, in EYFS. And again, it's been a long time since I've taught EYFS. So if any of you tuning in today are specialists, please do let me know if things have changed um, recently. But uh, each student, when I taught EYFS, had a book or a folder where example copies, I suppose, of their own work were stored. Not everything that they did, not every painting that they did went in there, not every um, drawing lines to match letters and signs went in there, but when there was obvious progress it went in. And that then was a way of showing progress over the year. And I think if one of the points of the exercise book is, as Christian suggests, to demonstrate pupil progress, maybe that's a model that we need to start adapting where we take their best essays, where we take their um, most successful practicals from DT or sport or science. And, you know, we put pictures or QR codes to video footage in. And over the year, that can build up into a portfolio of that student's best work either as directed by the teacher or as directed by the student themselves. Give them some ownership over their portfolio. But if, again, if we are just saying, yes, I want to use exercise books because of it's how it's always done, because of book looks, because of um, demonstrating progress, whatever it might be, that's not the good reason. Now, if you are sitting there and you've got lots of educational reasons for using an exercise book, if you can tell me that for you, in your either in your subject or in your personal practice, the exercise book is the best thing for your students to use, then please do. Absolutely, please do. I am, you know, I am not conceited enough to suggest that my practice is practice that works for everybody. Um, it's just for me right now, I am, I am honestly struggling to see the worth. So a couple of years ago, uh, yeah, academic year before last, I made the switch from paper exercise books to Microsoft OneNote. Um, now, again, recognizing the privilege of my setting, I am in a one-to-one -one device school. So from currently from year nine, our students are all required to have a device. Um, that has historically been an iPad. We are actually now making the switch to uh, Microsoft Surfaces. But all throughout, we've been making use of Teams. You know, Teams was the platform that we used during, during lockdown. And um, OneNote was something that we used because that is integrated into Teams. And so when 
my year nine class a couple of years ago came with their iPads, I thought, okay, fantastic. We are just going to use OneNote. Now, my reason for this was, was twofold, really. The first was that, honestly, I didn't want to take books in. We had just been locked down. We had just been told that, or, or we had been repeatedly told that COVID was transmitted or could be transmitted on surfaces. Um, and so I didn't particularly want to have to keep taking in and handing back exercise books. Whereas with OneNote, the students were writing on their iPad. I could see what they were writing on my iPad as they were writing it, which meant that I could keep physical distance from them. I could sit at the front of the classroom. I could stand at the front of the classroom, you know, two, three, four feet away from them. I didn't need to go and kind of look over their shoulder and I could see what they were writing. And it meant that all of the stuff that I didn't normally get to evidence could be evidenced. So again, I hadn't quite got over, and I honestly, I still haven't quite got over the idea of using my recording devices to evidence what the kids are doing. But when we did online games, I, I use online games a lot in my classroom. Uh, there are some really good tools out there for language teachers. Uh, you know, the students would play a game and, and quite often I would produce a worksheet for them. Uh, just, you know, a simple little table where I'd say, write down your score or whatever that might be. But what they were now able to do was take a screenshot and paste that directly into their OneNote underneath where they had um, written the learning objective and the date and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, when we did speaking in languages, I was able to have them record their speaking directly into their OneNote, which again, we couldn't do in an exercise book. It's very difficult in an exercise book to evidence speaking. What you can do, of course, is as a teacher record them, upload that to OneDrive, whatever it might be, QR code that and stick the QR code in the book, kind of like I do with my PDJ when I want to link back to my show. Uh, and that's absolutely fine, but it's it's lots of steps. Whereas this way, they were just recording straight into their notebook. Um, I was able to import everything that I needed. You know, all of my worksheets could go straight in there. And it didn't matter if I ran out of time. It didn't matter if there was a massive queue at the photocopier because I could just directly put a PDF or a Word document or whatever I wanted them to work on straight into their one notebook. And so if I was having a particularly hectic week and I wasn't on top of my photocopying, I didn't need to panic because I didn't actually need to do any of it. I also found, you know, we talked about how exercise books are good for the budget. I found that, in fact, my, my copying budget reduced drastically during that year because I wasn't photocopying worksheets anymore. I remember ahead at a previous school that I worked in, um, this was a school that was very proud of its eco-school status, and the head hated paper on paper. Um, she, One of my biggest critiques from her was when I would print off a, a worksheet and have the students stick it into their book. Because at the time, I thought it was just being a bit picky, but now that I think about it, she's right. Because what we are actually doing is taking four leaves of paper, 
or three leaves of paper, we'll say, one side of an exercise book, a blank side of a worksheet, and then the, the front side of a worksheet, and turning them into one sheet of paper. So I'm essentially wasting two bits of paper. That's money that, as we've established, schools do not have in abundance, and that's trees that I have been wasting. Whereas just putting everything directly into the OneNote meant that there was no paper at all. I really liked it. And for the first, let's, seven, eight weeks, until about half term, to about October half term, it was the best thing ever. And I was espousing my love of OneNote, and I was never, ever, ever going to use any kind of paper products ever again. After half term, my year nines had fallen out of the habit of charging their devices. And so it wasn't a problem first thing in the morning. If I had period one, period two, anything before break, that was absolutely fine. When it came to half past three and they came to my lesson, they would invariably come with maybe 5% charge. And, and I found that students don't like that. They don't like having low battery. Um, they would always say to me, oh, do I have to do it on my iPad because it's only got 10% left? And I sort of would say to them, well, yes, 10% is fine. You know, our lesson is only 45 minutes long. You can get by on, on 10%. But they didn't like that. There was uh, almost an anxiety about having low battery. And it kind of, we would have them charge them at lunchtime and at break time. You know, that was all fine. But the issue... I think there, particularly with the battery life, is that students don't always see the difference between a school-based, a work machine and a personal machine. So, you know, within moments of activating their iPads, they had downloaded all the social media apps. They had downloaded all the games. You know, you would see it. it I, using Apple Classroom as I walked in, you would see them on the iPad playing games while they were waiting for me to arrive. Um, which actually I didn't have an issue with because I didn't want them to be bored. They were entertaining themselves while they were waiting for me. That was absolutely fine. Um, but of course, it meant that the gaming took priority over the education. The idea that this was a game machine took priority over the idea of it being an educational tool. And so at that point, um, they they were happily running down the battery because it was almost like I was inconveniencing them by asking them to use it for school. So it kind of got to the point where I had to make sure that for every lesson I was double resourcing. I had to make sure that I had something available online that those who brought their iPads with them could use and that I had something available physically that um, that those who had run out of charge could use. A lot of that, of course, could be mitigated if we change the furniture within a classroom. And I think schools that are moving to a one-to-one -one device policy, which lots of schools now are, need to think about this, need to think about investing in those tables that have charging ports so that the students can come in, sit at their table and charge their device. Because to be fair, if we are expecting them to have devices in school, we should be providing places for them to be charged. Um, the students, of course, do have the responsibility to do that. They do have 
uh, the responsibility to make sure that at break time, at lunchtime, they, in our case, they went back to their boarding houses um, to charge their devices. But, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that, um, that we should have these ports available in the classroom. So yeah, that was that was an interesting experiment. Um, I was I was kind of anticipating that. I knew that there would be issues arising from the technology from from the students. What I didn't anticipate was the amount of backlash that I would get from other teachers, and that was really interesting to me. Um, and and the biggest critique that I got from other teachers was that the students would forget how to write. Those were the words that were used to me. They would forget how to handwrite. Um, they have to handwrite their exam. And if they're not handwriting in class in a book, then they're going to forget how to do it. And it's taken me a long time to kind of process that critique um, because my, my defensive instinct was a student is not going to forget how to write because for 45 minutes out of their day in my lesson, they are on their iPad typing. Uh, and I still stand by that. I still think that's true. Um, but I'm also going to point out that it, in fact, is not true that all students handwrite their exams because we know that a um, we know that students who struggle with handwriting, students who have fine motor skill issues, for example, are allowed to word process their GCSE and A level papers. The US entry exams, the SAT and the ACT, are increasingly moving online. We saw in the news a couple of weeks ago that um, Ofqual are looking at moving exams to be computer-based to make sure that it's in line with work-based skills. You know, we always get kids saying, oh, sir, when am I going to need to conjugate French verbs in real life? Or when am I going to need to use Pythagoras theorem? Very rarely do we ever get the critique of when am I going to need to write something by hand? And in fact, very few of us do write anything by hand during the day. Most of us are on some kind of device, word processing, texting, whatever it might be. And, you know, again, to be clear, I am not against handwriting at all. I think handwriting is a, a lost art. But there is actually, again, no real reason why most exams need to be paper-based. I could make an argument for Chinese and Japanese, again, staying within my subject area, because the ability to properly form kanji, hansa, is important so that they're legible. But once again, having taught natives, I know that native speakers of Chinese, Chinese in particular, but Japanese as well, don't always form their characters in inverted commas properly. There's a, a kind of shorthand that they develop. And so, you know, again, we are testing our students here on what is correct language traditionally by making sure that they can write things properly, correctly, uh, but is not necessarily real life. So, you know, there is that as well. So I kind of, I am against this idea that, that students should be handwriting everything because they handwrite their exams because it's not preparing them for real life. It's teaching once again to the exam. And yes, they do need to be trained. You know, how many times have we had students come out of, of internal exams going, oh, my arm aches, my wrist hurts so much, I can't do yet another exam. And so that is true. They do need to build up that endurance. Um, but 
they're not going to forget how to write just because they are using technology in our classrooms. I have ultimately abandoned being 100% online um, only because of the battery life issues. I think if we made charging ports more readily available in classrooms, um, or perhaps if we required students to bring portable chargers with them, uh, I might go back to it because I do actually like it. And I am, in fact, still using it for my sixth form speaking um, because all I need in my sixth form speaking is a copy of the, the activity that we've done and the highlighted mark grade. And I can do that in my own online notebook. Um, but I have gone now this year to paper booklets. Uh, again, for my key stage three classes, I've gone to paper booklets. And I noticed over the summer while I was weighing up pros and cons, perhaps I was influenced, I'm not sure, but booklets kind of became the, the educational fad over the summer. Everybody was switching to booklets. Um, I hope I wasn't influenced, but I may well have been. Um, and, you know, I, I, I looked up the pros and cons of, of booklets and I've thought very carefully about what they do. And so far they have been working for me. Now, again, I'm going to recognize my privilege in that I actually right now have an unlimited reprographics budget. I'm very, very lucky in that regard. Um, but what I have found is just as a, a, a straw poll, I'm not spending any more on my reprographics budget than I had done last year um, when I was using exercise books and photocopying worksheets. Because actually, I'm just photocopying the exact same amount of stuff. The only difference is I'm now not also wasting money by giving them out an exercise book. So I am, in fact, saving money right now by doing this. Again, I have the privilege of having a reprographics budget that can handle it, but I am ultimately saving my department money by not handing out the exercise books. Um, in their article, hold on, what's this one called? I need to scroll back up to the top. Uh, what's the point of an exercise book? Uh, teen Geography, uh, on teengeography.wordpress.com. Again, I will, um, I will tweet out links to everything that I've referenced a bit later. Um, talk about why they have used exercise books. And again, they, they do the same thing. Um, and, you know, all about how it's always been, stuff for the inspector. And then in the subsection, what's the alternative? They talk about bookletizing. I love that as a verb, by the way, bookletizing. Um, and the the author of this post says, for me, bookletizing the curriculum has been absolutely transformative. Students, A, get to read loads of stuff. B, don't have to worry about writing down everything I write on the board or they see on the board. And C, have well-organized, thought-out notes ready to go. And, and that was the thing that kind of flipped my mind into going, yes, I think I want to try booklets. Because I was thinking about, specifically about my SEN students, um, and many of them, and I'm sure, again, you have this in your schools, many of them have on their IPP that they cannot copy from the board. 
And so you, we are anyway producing, maybe producing our PowerPoints that can be annotated. Maybe we are producing um, summary notes for them. Again, that can be annotated and giving those out. And I do absolutely believe in making sure that we are making the correct accommodations for our students. But I got to thinking that actually my students who are able to copy from the board would benefit just as much from having a printout of my PowerPoint that they can annotate. Because while, yes, there is some evidence that suggests that writing helps to retain things, and for me certainly writing does help to process, um, I, I believe that I think through writing. Um, I keep a journal because I find it very easy. I find it much easier to process through writing than through 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 thought or through speech. So there is validity in that. But actually, if they have a copy of my PowerPoint that they can annotate as I'm speaking, they are going to be focused more on the content that I'm teaching rather than asking me for random spellings, for example, that don't matter in the long run in terms of what I'm teaching or complaining because I flipped the slide too quickly because I'm ready to move on and they're still making their notes. Or asking me to go back and repeat something that I've already said because they were too busy copying and they weren't then listening. And, and that, was, that was where I started. I started by thinking, well, okay, maybe this year I will print off my PowerPoints for everybody. They can be stuck in an exercise book and they can be annotated. Uh, and that was when I thought, well, actually, if I'm just printing off my PowerPoints, why don't I print off everything? Why don't I print off my PowerPoints for each lesson? I attach the worksheets that I would then give them to be stuck in the exercise book. I attach the marking schemes for what whatever um, uh, formative, summative assessment I might be doing in this little unit. And it's all there to begin with. So that's what I did. Um, I am with each of my classes, so that I'm trialing this with, with year eight German and year nine French, uh, I'm about three booklets in because I give them one booklet per unit and each unit for me at the moment, um, because of the methodology uh, that we are introducing in my school, um, lasts uh, about two, two and a half weeks. So yeah, we're about, we're about three booklets in. One of the best side effects of this that I found is that it doesn't matter as much if they lose a booklet compared to if they lose their exercise book. So again, with the students whose books had gone to the inspector, while the booklet was happening, if I just had exercise books, they wouldn't have had anything to write in. Because of course, the, the inspectors were there during school time. Whereas with the booklets, it actually didn't matter that the inspectors had taken their little folder with booklets in because I had given out new booklets for that lesson anyway. I'd, it had just worked out like that. It will be frustrating when a student loses a booklet, but it will be very easy for me to just very quickly print off that one booklet's worth of PowerPoint slides or whatever it might be. A sentence border is quite often what I'm using at the moment. Compared to if they lose their exercise books, and we've all been there, we've all sent out the whole staff email saying, please, can you look out for so-and-so's exercise book? 
Uh, she doesn't know when she last saw it. Or when the excise book gets a, um, a flask full of squash spilled over it and it comes to you and it's sticky. And even four weeks later, it still vaguely smells of Ribena. That once again is not the end of the world because yes, maybe the, the ink on the booklet has smudged, but they can just be given a new booklet or not even the whole booklet. If we're saving money, they could be given the most important parts of that booklet, the PowerPoint, the sentence builder, the essay structure, whatever it might be. So we are taking what we know to be a problem in school, which is the lost exercise book and mitigating it the best that we can. Uh, Mrs. Edge, uh, I've got to make sure I read this right. Mrs. Educate, Mrs. Educate, uh, in 2018 listed her reasons for using booklets. And, and I like these. She says, I am disorganized by nature. Thus to have any success, I have to be double organized if that's a thing. So I have to plan many moons ahead with exercise books. I couldn't do this as much as if I had everything photocopied way before a lesson. Now the, um, the, the technique that we are introducing at my school, EPI, runs on, like I said, a two and a half-ish week cycle, a five lesson cycle. So basically for every unit that I'm doing, I know exactly what I'm doing for each of my five lessons. I have to in order to f uh, follow the methodology. So why would I not sit down and plan out everything that I was going to do? Why would I not plan a whole unit at a time instead of just one lesson. And if I've planned my whole unit at a time, why not print off all those resources? And if I'm going to do that anyway, instead of just having them sitting in my classroom where they could get um, accidentally thrown in the bin or coffee spilt on them, I'm not as clumsy as, uh, as I seem to be making out today, I promise. Um, or where they just get sort of dusty and dirty from sitting in a drawer for four weeks until I actually need it. Instead of that, why not give it all to the student? They can spend some time flicking through. They then know what's coming over the next two and a half weeks. That gives them a sense of security. There are no surprises because they know the very worst thing that might happen is that I might miss out an activity. And then I don't have to think lesson by lesson about what resources I need to copy, about what I need to grab, because it is all there already. So I, I personally, I don't think I'm disorganized as a teacher. Um, I do, I like to stay on top of things, but even for, for a person like that, I think, you know, if I've done all of my planning, I may as well print it all off and have it ready to go from the beginning. Uh, Mrs. Educates goes on to say, I hate pointless tasks. I see writing down an LO, date, title, etc. as wasted time. I get it can help create schemas in the brain and help memory, but I would rather talk through an LO fully rather than spend most of my lesson getting it down. And my pupils strongly agree with this. Now, I'm going to say I do still have my students write down their LO. In my classroom, I have them write down the date in target language, then the weather in target language and then the LO in English. Um, honestly, I do that because it's how, I, how I've always done it. And now that I'm thinking about that out loud, I'm wondering why I do it. 
I guess I'm I'm falling under the assumption that they will process the learning outcome better if they write it down. But maybe Mrs. Educator is right. Maybe actually it would be better if it were printed there on the paper and we talked about it. Is my getting them to write it down a proxy for learning? Is it a is it something that makes me feel good as the teacher? because they're writing, they're doing something, but it doesn't actually improve their learning. Am I wasting my limited time? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to think about that. I will come back to you next week with, with what I decide. Um, Mrs. Educate goes on to say, loose sheets, how I hated loose sheets. When they hadn't been stuck in, or when they've been stuck in wrong, or five pages in front of or behind where they were meant to be, or in my experience, upside down, um, which I always think is quite a good um, a, a good thing for people to achieve, to manage to get it in upside down. And again, that's true because it doesn't matter how many times you ask a student to stick something in, not everything gets stuck in. Even by the most diligent students, not everything gets stuck in. So that work then potentially is lost. And if it's an important one, if it is a, if you're a history teacher and it's a, a, a timeline of the Tudor kings and queens, for example, and that's gone, they can't revise from it. Whereas if it were already printed on a sheet of paper in their booklet, it's less likely to, to go walkies. It also, once again, means that we're not sticking paper on paper. So saving the trees, saving money. So Mr. Educate goes on to talk about the, the pros of her booklets. She says everything was printed in advance, so she was ready lesson on lesson. There was no mad rush uh, in the morning at a photocopier, no last minute planning, no loose sheets. Again, we've all been there where we still need to plan a lesson, but something outside of school has happened and has meant that we haven't been able to plan it as well as we would like to. Whereas if you've taken the time to sit down and plan your five lessons in advance, particularly if you've scheduled out that time in your PPA, um, on your, your HODS morning, whatever it might be, then you know that that wave of five lessons is ready to go. And you then don't necessarily have to plan anything until your next dedicated planning time, which can save that rush. Uh, everything is there. Marking, starters, extensions, homeworks, G&T, differentiated, differentiated LOs, differentiated tasks, everything. If you're differentiating your task, but all the booklets look the same, your students are not necessarily going to know that they are being differentiated for. I observed a lesson um, a couple of years ago where the teacher was brilliant and they differentiated for the students perfectly. But the students didn't like to know that they were being differentiated for. They didn't like to know that they were being treated differently. The teacher had the questions from the, the, the lower attaining group. Why do we have this one? Why is this not as hard as theirs? Now, that of course, there are other ways to differentiate. But if everybody's booklet looks the same, and if the structure of the activity is the same, they are less likely to notice that the content is different. It is, as somebody who is rubbish at remembering to do starters, I quite like having my starters there. Now, my starters actually are in an exercise book 
um, he says sheepishly. Um, but what I did for them was I produced a bingo board and the bingo board is stuck in the front of the exercise book and they, they come in and they just choose an activity from the bingo board and they do it as their starter. I did consider putting starters into my booklets, um, but one of my goals is to help with um, independent thinking and taking responsibility for learning. So by having it separate, I just, um, I did it that way. But as somebody who is really bad at remembering to do starters, that isn't just write down the date and the weather and the learning objective, um, having it in the booklet would be perfect because it would mean you could train the students into coming in, sitting down, doing the starter. I wouldn't have to think about it because I had already told myself when I was planning my, my unit, I'm bad at starters, let's put them in. It's something a non-specialist could use. So again, in, in my case, I know, for example, that I am out on the course next Friday. Um, my year nine lesson will be covered probably by a non-specialist because all of the specialists are teaching year nine at that time. And my cover work, uh, my work for the cover teacher will be students can carry on working through their booklets. I will have made sure that in the booklet is everything that they need so that essentially they can leave the cover teacher alone and just get on with it. The most in theory the cover teacher will have to do is explain the instructions, which will be in English. So it doesn't matter whether or not the, the cover teacher is a French teacher because the kids can just get on with it. And it can be directly linked to your PowerPoints. I've seen this done brilliantly. Um, I hope she won't be embarrassed by my saying, but Marie, who, who texted me earlier, my head of... Um, head of prep school languages she does this really really well by linking the activities that are on her powerpoint directly to what's in the booklet sometimes it's the exact slide that is just printed off and put in the booklet sometimes it's a space where students can write things uh, can write the answers from the powerpoint activity into the booklet um, it's all sorts of ways and it links directly to the lesson and that gives the students i've noticed a real feeling of belonging because everything is cohesive it's like this is our lesson this is what we're doing right now we are all in this together i've made this for you and you have it and and that cohesion i think ultimately will lead them to taking greater responsibility over their learning and of course my favorite thing about the booklet is making sure that they can see in advance what their formative assessment is going to be. So the formative assessment and the mark scheme are pasted at the back of the booklet. They're the last couple of pages. We look at it at the beginning of the unit and I can say to them, this is what we are building to. This is how I'm going to mark it. Now you know what you need to focus on before we get there. And we can keep referring back to it. We can go back to the assessment and I can say, right, this lesson has taught you what you need to fulfill this bullet point, this criterion. Um, with year nine, I actually use GCSE criteria to do that because why not? You know, we're training them for the GCSE. Uh, with year eight, I use the criteria that I will use to mark their internal exams. So it also helps for them to train for the exam, which let's be honest, is in a booklet. Um, without realizing necessarily that that's what they're doing. The last thing that I want to talk about, um, 
only have a couple of minutes and that's fine because that's all I need, are commonplace books. Now, the historians and the literature teachers among you um, will be familiar, I'm sure, with commonplace books, but I don't know how uh, extensive they have been in your teaching. A commonplace book, uh, for those of you who don't know, historically is a, a notebook that becomes a personal textbook. So it's something that we used to use, um, particularly during the Renaissance, I believe. Um, all the examples, at least, that I've seen online have been from the Renaissance. Um, and people would just, as, as a journal, as a learning journal, they would just write down things that they've learnt. They would write down quotes that they'd heard and they'd liked. It was just, it was a diary, essentially, just where you would keep track of anything that interested you. And I really like that idea, um, particularly having been reminded this week of how much my students do actually like language. Um, I tweeted about this, that on Monday to celebrate European Day of Languages, I put my year nine group onto an app. Uh, I introduced them to an app that we are gonna use in French, uh, but I said to them, basically, study whatever language you want. Take 45 minutes on this app to explore Italian, Korean, Vietnamese, sign language. A lot of my students opted to look at sign language, which was interesting. And it reminded me that they do have enthusiasm and they do have interest. And so I'm thinking that commonplace books would be a good way for students to remind themselves of their interest just by having a little notebook, a little journal. It could be online, if you wanted it to be online, where they write down interesting things from the lesson, interesting things that they've learnt outside of the lesson that we could perhaps reference in report writing, that they've taken responsibility for their learning and gone outside of the lesson to learn. Quotes, if you are teaching a book or a film. All sorts of things that you could do with a commonplace book. I'm going to explore, I'm going to experiment more with commonplace books, probably, to be honest, in my own learning uh, for my master's, and I'll come back in a, a month or so and let you know how I'm getting on with that because I'm really interested in this idea. If you have used commonplace books either in your own learning or your teaching, um, please do let me know how it's gone because I'd be interested. Thank you Tom. Tom has tweeted in to express his, uh, texted in, I'm sorry, to express his enjoyment of today's show. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That does bring me to the end of today. I am the only uh, Teachers Talk radio show today. Um, we have hosts who are off preparing for the London Marathon, which is why they are not joining us. We have hosts who have got um, other school things happening this weekend. So I'm our only show today. Uh, but do continue to engage. Again, as always, you can tweet me directly. I'm at Mr. D. Lester uh, on Twitter. You can tweet uh, Teachers Talk Radio. We are at TT Radio 2022. Uh, if you'd like to engage with anything that you've heard today, or if you are missing your normal afternoon fix of Teach Talk Radio, like I said earlier, please do go back and listen to a past show. They are all there available for you to download and listen to at your convenience. Thank you, everybody, for your engagement today. Thank you for, for listening. Have a great rest of your weekend, and I can't wait to have breakfast with you again next Saturday. Thank you, and goodbye.